Welcome, everyone, to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 130, and we're reviewing Two Year Eternity Season 2. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode. We are fresh off the end of Season 2 of Two Year Eternity. And, uh, yeah, what happened? What (laughs) happened? Good lord. (laughs) <laughs> what the fuck happened? Um, if that kind of gives you a bit of a hint at the direction our review is going to go, then that's great. Um, but yeah, I, I I have a lot to say. And quite frankly, not much of it is good. I know that after we caught up on To Your Eternity and then watched this last episode, <laughs> I needed a palate cleanser. So I, Carl's heard me make this joke like a million times now, but... I was like, can we please watch an episode of Inland Saga? I just need to see something good. And then he put it on. <laughs> I was like, finally, some good fucking anime. Yeah, and they were actually great episodes of Inland Saga that we watched. So it was a it was a good palate cleanser. But it, in terms of To Your Eternity with, with this season, I was getting flashbacks to 2021 when The Promised Neverland Season 2 came out and it fell well below our expectations yeah. and it, it's disappointing because i think we we've had a an episode on to your eternity season one and we were just heaping praises on it and we i, I know i called it like this really biblical journey that focused on different facets of the human condition the value of life and what it means to live one's life with purpose. And so riding on the emotions of that going into season two, I was expecting it to be the same thing, like stories that are going to be heart-wrenching, but that that fill you with inspiration in some way. Didn't get any of that in season two, and I'm sure you didn't either. Yeah, no, not at all. And for anyone who's interested, um, we highly recommend checking out our review of season one. It's episode 51 of Strictly Anime, um, posted about a year ago. So uh, it's it's a little while since we've revisited that discussion, but I do recall just loving every moment of To Your Eternity. I think there were some hesitations we had around the Tonati arc. Um, around the animation because we saw a decline by that point in the show and that arc didn't hit nearly as hard as the nameless one or nameless boy or whatever arc in the beginning the march arc and the gugu arc um, but it was still really really good Don't and forget the puron arc oh and the yeah the, yeah that's right the puron arc was really really good so the vast majority of season one was phenomenal and I like the emotional roller coaster that was season one was phenomenal. And so to Carl's point, we had such high hopes going into season two and very quickly we felt it just wasn't going to live up to expectations. So this is going to be a review that's kind of difficult for us because we love this show. We love the premise. Mm -hmm. We love everything that season one gave us. We just can't ignore the disappointments that have come through with season two. So hopefully that reassures everyone that we're not just roasting the shit out of To Your Eternity. Our goal is to give our transparent and very frank thoughts about um, a body of work. And yeah, I just, I don't know. I have a feeling that To Your Eternity Season 2 could be a contender for one of the biggest disappointments this year. And it's it's so early in the year for us to consider this a disappointment. But like, there are so many questions that I have about this season. 
I think the biggest one of all is like, what is this season trying to prove with Fushi's story or like offshoots of that? Like, what is the idea behind Prince Bond's story or Echoes or the return of Fushi's fallen friends? And I guess to encompass that, like, is there any emotional weight in this season at all? Like, I, I'm, you know, I, I feel like two year eternity is a very, as I mentioned earlier, it's very symbolic of, of life and, and philosophy, but I think it's, it just gets muddled with this season that it's, it doesn't hold a candle to what we experienced in, in season one. And, you know, since I've, I've been kind of sticking with like the Bible analogy that I've used for the show, I, I would say this season's almost like reading the books of the Bible that contradict other stories in the Bible and so that's where I, I I ask. It's a rhetorical question, but maybe there's a listener out there who can clarify. Like, what is season two of your or of to your eternity trying to prove? Yeah, what lessons are they trying to teach us, or what morals you know are they trying to uh, build these these plot lines off of? Like, I can easily name those same things for March and and Gugu and whatnot. Um, but I just, I can't pinpoint them for the new characters that we have in this season. Um, I, I do wonder if this is a problem with the manga or if a lot of the problems stem from the studio that has taken on to your eternity because there was a studio change. So season one was done by Brainspace and they have a pretty decent track record. Um, they've come out with a number of shows that I've personally really enjoyed and thought had great anime adaptations. Um, and then it switched to Studio Drive. I do not know the reason for the switch. Um, all I know is that Studio Drive is, uh, I don't know if they're new. No, they were established 2015, but they're pretty small. They only have, at least on Mal, eight bodies of work, um, to your Eternity Season 2 being one of them. They have two upcoming projects, and that's Konosuba Season 3 and the Konosuba spinoff with Megumin. So that has me really worried because I love Konosuba. And they're also working on Uzumaki. So that also has me worried because that I know has a lot of hype around it. So I I don't know. I don't know what happened here um, or what's going on with Studio Drive. But there were some glaring issues with the way season two was produced versus season one. Yeah, I mean, animation-wise, I felt like most of it was pretty consistent with the um, animation from Brainspace's adaptation, but yeah, there are some portions where it felt just a, a tad, or maybe even more than a tad, unclean. Uh, and I, I'm specifically remembering, I think, in one of the later episodes, where like knockers, you know, like knockers are supposed to be like these animated, like little creatures. And I just remember it was kind of just, there was a shot of them just moving back and forth instead of actually having those organic gestures or organic movements. Um, so I guess animation in that sense felt a little bit lazy. Uh, but I would say even close-up shots of some of the characters, there wasn't as much detail as you would see in uh, season one that was done by Brainspace. Yeah, and not only that, like the pacing was awful. Everything was moving at a at lightning speed. Every single episode, I feel like I could, I didn't have a breather. I didn't have a moment to digest what I just witnessed, especially if it was like a character death or something. They just like moved a million miles an hour. So really, I I, I kind of thought the opposite. Maybe with the 
uh, Renril arc with like no, yeah. So let me let me clarify. Like the Renril arc took the entirety of the second half, but episode by episode, it was like boom, 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 boom. Like there's all this mm. shit happening in the span of one episode. And if you take out the recap, the preview, the OP, the ED, you're talking like a 20 minute span. Um, I felt like individual episodes just felt like there was so much going on and they were moving so quickly in the episodes. But no, you're right. Like the Renril arc took quite a number of episodes. In fact, it spanned what 10 i would say like it was the full 10 episodes in the latter mm -hmm. half yeah just about 10 episodes so i think if i were to sum it up my my disappointment with season two of to your eternity really stems from the fact that the animation sucks the pacing sucks the characters suck and this overall part of the story is nowhere near as compelling endearing and emotional as season one now there's plenty of specifics that i have as as to why that is because i know that's a very harsh statement it's uh it's it's you know it's very much out there like i'm i'm putting my thoughts like directly out there for everybody um so we will certainly dive into that similar to the way we structured our season one review with the fact that Two Eternity has 20 episodes, it's kind of in that middle ground where it's a little too many episodes for us to do an episodic review, but it's not enough episodes for us to do a two-part review series. So we're going to break things down into arcs. It'll be different than our normal for format. You won't get episode by episode. We're going to talk about the first half of the show and then the second half of the show. So I think the second half of the show, episodes 10 to 20, or whenever it switches, 11 to 20, I guess. Um, I would consider that like the Renril arc. Would you also consider that the same? Yeah, I guess the way I structured my synopses, um, episodes one through eight, I kind of considered part one. And then episodes nine through 20 would be part two. Oh, okay, did the Renril arc start around nine? Yeah, just about like once Prince Bond's story ended up, I think was right around episode nine. Okay, then what would you consider the first arc? Prince Bond, because that's kind of what I was thinking too, or Bond Summer or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> As with the the previous, um, our previous to your eternity review, I, I split them into gospels because I just I don't know why I, I've been sticking with this Bible theme for to your eternity, but I guess it's just because at, at least with season one, I thought these stories felt biblical. I would say season season two kind of feels just more anime in a way, but yeah, I split it up as. Like, a, like focusing on Prince Bond for the first half and then Renril for the second half. But I think before we dive into all of that, we can just briefly talk about the OP and the ED. I think the OP is probably the one positive highlight of season two because it's remained unchanged from season one because the OP for season two is Pink Blood by Yutada Hikaru. I mean, there's obviously changes in visuals with, you know, Fushi. I think there's a shot of him underwater um, kind of spreading his roots, as, as we'll see in the later half of the season, and then interspersed with shots of the, the characters that he meets in this season, as well as him thinking back to his fallen comrades. But I think overall, visuals-wise, with this OP, kind of spoils the entirety of season two by sequentially going through all the major events of the two arcs in the season yeah i i feel similarly I, I i was my first note the first time we watched the op 
in episode one or whenever it was, I wrote, okay, let's see how they'll lie to us in this season's OP. Because if you recall in season one, there's so much beautiful imagery in the OP, but none of it actually came true. Like, for example, March being uh, an older uh, older woman and like dancing all happy and, and, and you know, happy-go-lucky. And then Gugu and Reem like together and Google's not even wearing his mask you can like see his face if I recall correctly I could be wrong on that um all these little things you're like oh that's gonna be you know part of the story because anime always anime OPs always tell us what's gonna happen none of that fucking happened it was all lies and it hurt even worse um however it's the opposite I think with this OP I'm it seemed like everything that they showed us actually did happen in the season which is you know, fine. That's like a, a trope of, of anime OPs. But I was just ecstatic that they kept the same song. That's a rarity in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it's Pink Blood by Utada Hikaru and I'm a huge Utada fan, I was so happy to have that song return to the show. Maybe because a song by Utada Hikaru is just irreplaceable. Yeah. Like, how, how are you going to top that? <laughs> and probably really fucking expensive, let's be honest. Yeah. <laughs> And then ED-wise, you have the song Roots, which I believe is written by the series composer Masashi Hamauzu. Sorry, Masashi Hamauzu. Um, I know you like to skip it because it was just, I don't know, maybe the sound of the instruments was... It was noisy. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. I thought it was kind of noisy. I was like, oh, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. I I guess it's supposed to be like a a reflective song at the end of the episode. Um, And... Visuals wise, you have this this sort of natural landscape as you see some of Fushi's vessels and some of the present characters, although they're all drawn as like ghostly figures, which is kind of off-putting like, well, the first time you watch it because you're kind of questioning uh, why why are they all like spirits, even though we've never we haven't met these characters yet. Then you realize, like especially with the warriors, the three warriors, that they end up becoming Fushi's vessels in the second half. So maybe that was a little bit of a spoiler. Um, You also have Echo. I think she's sitting under a tree, which we don't get introduced to her until the second half. So a lot of this ED, also a bit spoiler heavy, but I guess you don't really realize until you get to the second half what it means. All right, Strictly fam, it's time to be Ren Real. So let's dive into our synopsis and discussion for... To Your Eternity Season 2, the 2022 anime adaptation of a Japanese manga series written and illustrated by Yoshitoki Oima. Produced by Studio Drive and directed by Kyoko Sayama, the second season continues immortal being Fushi's biblical journey as he befriends a slew of new allies for an all-out war against the infectiously destructive Knockers. So as was mentioned, we are splitting this season into two parts. So starting with the gospel of Prince Bonchen Nicoli La Tasty Peach Uralis, which encompasses episodes 1 through 8, Infatuation Reborn, Beating Will, The Awaited, The Young Man Who Can See, The Holy Man's Voyage, Heretics Betrayed, Crime and Forgiveness, and Beyond Dreams. It's been quite an eternity now that Fushi has lived a cushy life alone on a deserted island, until the looming threat of the Nick-Knockers and an insistent descendant of Hoyase pulls him back into the game. But after the descendant shows her true Yanomi-Homi colors by poisoning a later acquaintance who turns out to be Fushi's ex-convict comrade Tonari, Fushikushi decides to swerve the descendant and go at his own for a lifetime and a half. 
but Hoyase's offspring just can't take a hint as the newest male progeny, Kahaku, comes knick-knocking at Fushi's door to protect him from the church of anime that accuses Fushi of being an orbomination. The pair are subsequently captured by Prince Josuke of the Uranus Kingdom, who decides to take them across Zawardo as a snake oil salesman to prove that Fushikushi ain't demon tushi. The prince inadvertently discovers in his sales pitch to a particular kingdom that Fushi's special power is Bring Me to Life by Evanescence, but decides that it's not important for the orbital child to know yet this early into the anime. Instead, the Church of Anime puts a stop to Prince Josuke's snake oil show to improve Fushikushi's public image, throwing the latter into an iron brig and sending the former to kangaroo court. However, with the power of God and anime actually on his side, Fushi breaks out of his spherical cell block and rescues Prince Josuke by faking his death and helping him assume a new identity as Baron Josuke. Kahaku's knocked-up arm then begins acting up and warns Fushikushi that if he wants to settle things with the knickknackers once and for all, he's gotta head to the city of Renryl to fuck around and find out. Thus, Baron Josuke and Kahaku set out to recruit brave allies for the impending battle, while Fushikushi rents out a pirate ship Airbnb to practice his creation quirk in order to prepare for Fushivenger's Eternity War. So I know we're not talking about this episodically, but let me just give you a taste of what I was saying earlier with the with each episode being very fast-paced. These are my notes straight from episode one. I mean, fresh introduction into this new season. The first note I have is, that was a very fast-paced episode with a lot of stuff crammed in. And I, I noted, you know, the, some village gets attacked by knockers, and then suddenly we find out that Fushi's been in this form and has didn't ha- has not transformed in like 40 years, and that for some reason he was in the ocean for a little while. And then suddenly the guardians are back, and we find out that Hayase has like a great-granddaughter or a granddaughter or whatever it is. And then we find out that Tonari is still alive. And uh, then we find out that Hayase is actually, you know, kind of, betraying Fushi or whatever, poisoning him, tricking him, trying to attack Tonari as well, and then they're about to break out into a battle. And the last note I have for episode one is, I don't know what's happening. (laughs) That's my feeling Mm -hmm. almost every single episode is that, at least up until we get to the Renril arc, where I'm just like, there's so much shit happening in each episode that I feel like I don't have time to stop and think. And that's, that's not good for a show that is supposed to deliver emotion to you. You need time to process those emotions and be hit by them. But if you see something happen and then suddenly they switch to something else before you can even like realize what's going on, you're not going to have those emotional connections. Yeah, I see now what you mean by the pacing of the show kind of being erratic, especially in this first episode. It was kind of surprising that I know with uh, season one we ended with Fushi like an older version of him. And we kind of see the same thing here, although he resets for a while because he wants to explore the sea or something. Um, I don't know. I I feel like we transitioned too much from, or like we moved away too quickly from Fushi isolating himself, where I feel like this might have been a a great arc for him to kind of do like self-reflection. Although I guess he's already been in self-reflection for 40 years, but we weren't privy to that because of, of the time skip no but i think you're absolutely right sorry to jump in you're absolutely right i think the first episode should have just focused on 
what has he been doing the past 40 years? Even if we don't dive into that, we need to understand that he has isolated himself because he can't handle losing people he cares about. That is so incredibly important because we see how badly the deaths in season one impacted him. So I wanted to take more time to like learn what's going through his head and see how much he is in pain and how much he's scared to go through that cycle over and over again. Yeah, but on the flip side, it's that with his inaction, obviously the knockers are starting to become more prevalent through the world and 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 causing casualties that he's not he's choosing not to be part of because he's afraid of losing people in the process as well. So it's obviously Fushi's between a rock and a hard place, but yeah, I think it this this the first episode kind of just glosses over that to just put him back into the fight and then you have the introduction to Hayase's descendants. I think the first one we meet her name was um Hisame. I thought this was going to be an interesting thing to follow throughout the show where you know I, it, it feels like this was an example of sort of time healing all wounds and Fushi coming to an understanding with a, a previous transgressor. But as we'll see with Kahaku, it's kind of the same story with Hayase all over again. Maybe not as severe, but it, it's it's the, the cycle kind of repeating itself with Hayase's family. So it kind of was a little bit disappointing that we kind of, we get the same song and dance with Hayase's descendants. Although I think Kahaku does something very virtuous in the in the end for Fushi, but yeah, this was one one of those plot lines that I feel kind of it didn't go the the way that I had hoped I completely agree I, I thought there was um there was something more to be said like like you you mentioned there's there was something more to be said around time passing and maybe people learning and growing from the mistakes of of you know their their relatives or whatever um but yeah that didn't pan out at all even kahaku who like you said was less egregious in his actions still showed signs of of obsession with with fushi and um i I think with hisame i one thing i did like about it and what i liked with with fushi's choices is that he did give her the benefit of the doubt actually same Mm -hmm. with all of them all of them you know throughout time and, and kahaku being the last one that we saw he gave them the benefit of the doubt, even if he was still a bit hesitant to fully trust them. So I like that because that was kind of his his same thought is maybe time has healed. Maybe they've learned and grown. Uh, and maybe we're at a point now where we can become allies. But no, you're right. Like Then it just ended up being everyone obsessed with him and him being creeped out. By the way, what did you think of... Maybe this is just a, a natural evolution for Fushi, but him now being able to speak full sentences... I think it's fine. It makes sense. Like how many years have gone by and him needing to like uh, the, one of the key parts of the Google arc is teaching Fushi how to communicate and mm-hmm. how to be like a self-sustaining individual um, and really just growing up. I think that's when I know March taught him like the, the foundations of communication, but I felt like the Google arc, I think they lived together like what, three, four years. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when his communication really started to take take shape. But then I wonder maybe with like Pioran, did that continue to grow? Because if he's in isolation for 40 years, I was gonna say, yeah. then he'd probably not have any progression on his communication. Yeah, like how was he going to learn more of the language if he was in a self-imposed exile? But... Unless he was talking to the black one often. Yeah, but he doesn't true. say much anyway. <laughs> yeah. 
Also, <laughs> maybe... I, like there's that scene I think in episode two with Hisame about I think she asks him to help procreate more descendants. Yeah, <laughs> which I was like, oh god, where are we going with this? Yeah, I, I I just needed to clarify this so that you know the FBI doesn't enter the chat. But it's a misunderstanding, right? Because Hisame thinks sleeping together means they literally sleep next to each other. In order to procreate yeah like no no physical contact or anything they literally just need to sleep within the vicinity of each other mm -hmm. but fushi also thinks that that's what it is because neither of them have learned how reproduction works um so yeah that was that was alarming at first because they didn't make it super clear yeah. it was not super clear when she said those things to him and then they switched to the nighttime scene where they were laying next to each other and she was like oh i i, I want to thank you because now i can go home like a proud woman or something she said yeah and i was like oh my god wait what just happened like no way did they do this but then you did a quick bit of research and confirmed that no they they don't understand how it works they thought that just hanging out was enough because i don't think hayase i know she had trapped fushi in bed once but i don't think that they actually did it no yeah he like escaped <laughs> that very quickly he yeah. was like what the fuck are you doing <laughs> I do want to talk more about Kahaku, but I think it's better saved for the Renril arc. Um, but I will say his introduction seemed promising. He seemed like a little more rational, better head on his shoulders than the previous descendants or whatever. So yeah, to your earlier point, I did have hopes for him at that point, but then things spiral <laughs> in the latter half. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Prince Bonchen. Jeez Louise. Okay. So as I mentioned earlier, I think the characters in season two all pretty much suck. Um, and that includes Bon, uh, Tasty Peach or whatever his fucking name is. Bonchen Nicoli La Tasty Peach Oralis. Oh my God. Like I would, I would establish him as a man child. And I don't think that the show was shy about that. They showed even parts where like he was being fed by servants or whatever and couldn't do anything for himself. Like he really was a man child. And I thought, okay, well maybe I'll just sit through this because maybe he'll have a moment of growth later in the show where he does mature, which he does. But my problem with him, and I told you this um, when we were watching the episodes, my problem is you're telling me the guy was trapped in a cage for a little while and you know, questioned heavily by a church and then he gets a haircut and that's enough to completely 180 his personality like <laughs> after the haircut he barely shows signs of his eccentric nature and i get one's thought process can change because you've gone through a traumatic experience but your actual personality to completely 180 after your hair gets cut does not make any sense to me because he's still pretty eccentric even in the cage and he's still mm -hmm. pretty eccentric basically up until the moment he gets his haircut. So I was just like not convinced at all that this was even the same character. I was glad to see him get character development, but it was just so abrupt. Yeah, you, you bring up an interest, interesting point. And I know I questioned at the beginning of this episode, like what is the purpose of Prince Bond's character? Uh, I think it's it's kind of meant to show like a person who sort of takes advantage of others in order to further their own needs in this case it's like prince bond trying to prove to 
his family that he is a rightful heir to the throne and like i think i forget like how fushi kind of plays into it by him going around to the various kingdoms to show that fushi is not a bad guy but yeah in a sense i think he's kind of exploiting fushi to his own means um but I, i think in terms of him having that complete personality change i think when chabo was imprisoned with him in the same cage maybe that gave him a reality check um just seeing that you know it's not right that i should be doing these things when there are many people less fortunate than i who have to deal with worse uh again i don't think that justifies him losing his eccentric personality but i think it kind of sobers him up until the point where he thinks he's about to be executed and then gets saved by fushi um but yeah Prince Bon, I think his character had potential uh, when we were first introduced and with his his story developing. But then it's almost like, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, in, in part two, he doesn't really learn from his lessons or, or capitalize on the lessons that he's learned in part one with how he's using Fushi in the war. Uh, I, I will say this is a kind of an aside. The only plus side, I guess, with Prince Bon is that he's voiced by Takehito Koyasu, who's the same voice of of Dio and uh, Dio from JoJo and Zeke in Attack on Titan. But oh, Zeke? No, sorry, Zeke in oh. <laughs> Attack on Titan. Um, but yeah, this was just another character who ended up being a bit of a disappointment in this season. He showed a lot of potential, though, because there were those moments where I think like when they first came across some knockers um, after the knockers were destroyed, he was panicking, wondering, like, are all my soldiers okay?" and started calling out to them by name. And Mm -hmm. he shows that he actually takes the time to get to know these people, which is why they are so loyal to him and follow him wherever. Um, So he has the makings of a good leader, of a good person. Um, but you don't really get much of that until the second half. But even then, again, I'm also jumping ahead. But even then, when he starts to prove himself as like a competent individual, Fushi suddenly is like, I don't trust you anymore because of one thing that happened that questioned, that made me question like who you are. Um, so I, fe- I felt like the bond between Bon and Fushi was like brittle the entire way through, no matter mm-hmm. how much time they spent together. And then there's his, I guess, ab- ability to see dead people which i don't know how to think about that part of me just thinks that that was a convenient plot device for us to find out that fushi can can raise the dead back to life uh i don't know if you you kind of found any symbolism with with prince bon having that ability i mean not symbolism but i think it showed that like he had his own struggles like people there's that that flashback scene where like his mom and some old lady or whatever are trying to like pull the demon out of him or whatever, mm-hmm. and he's scared and in pain and whatnot, um, and he tries to hide this ability that he has because he thinks that it's wrong to have it or there's something wrong with him for having it. Um, so I think that he's it shows he's a misunderstood person, and that he has been led astray from the potential that he has being able to speak with the dead, um, but to your point with other, like other things, I don't think they capitalize on that really until the end. Like when, when Fushi gets Bon's vessel and can see 
dead people for himself. Be- and maybe that's because Bone was constantly told, suppress this power, like don't acknowledge this power, this power is bad. Mm-hmm. So then maybe he just didn't feel compelled to capitalize on it. I do want to say, though, it did open up the door. <laughs> Actually, not even this, the whole like reviving dead people thing, because that was introduced in this first half, wasn't it? With the, the With girl the, that died or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was like, holy shit. Do you know what this means? If he can revive dead people, fuck everybody else. He can bring back Gugu and Reen and they can reunite. Because as we saw in the beginning of the show, he transforms into Reen in her younger form, probably not too long after the Gugu arc, which unfortunately means that Reen probably died shortly after. Yeah, like died of a broken heart, probably. Yeah, I mean, I would. (laughs) Their their arc was absolutely beautiful. Um, Because if I recall correctly... Fushi is only able to transform into the vessels at the moment they died. So if Reen's looking young, that means she didn't live very long. But regardless, that means that he can bring back Gugu and Reen. They can reunite and all can be well in the world. Yeah, I just realized he never brought Reen back at the end. I don't know if he had lost her vessel or, or what happened there. He lost her vessel, yes, but he got all of them back when uh, Kahaku... Like and heroed into the oh, that's, iron. That's right. But I was reading a little bit more about that, and I think the idea is that he's not. And okay, I'm jumping ahead for sure. This is the end of the the season. Um, he's not planning to bring back any any of these people who have died because they all die, right? Like that. That's how the ending mm-hmm. plays out because they don't want to be brought back into a world with knockers. He doesn't oh, want to bring them back right, into a yeah. world that is unsafe, um, which is why they all die, and then he doesn't do anything about it. But I had the same okay. question initially. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? Bring them no, back. Yeah, you're right. Because at the end, there's a shot of like all of the spirits who who want to be back in this world. Um, and I don't think Rain shows up amongst any of them. Oh, my God. I hope she didn't pass on to heaven. Because then <laughs> she really can't come back. Oh, no. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe she thinks it better for me to move on to the afterlife than have to endure suffering again. Well, we'll find out. I still hold out hope that maybe she can be brought back because that was all I was rooting for. I was like, Gugu and Reen, that's all I need from the season to <laughs> to redeem it. I also remember from part one, there was this whole thing about like the feeling of love that Fushi couldn't grasp. Um, and I know like Prince Bon had, had kind of give him a, him a task to to find a partner and Kahaku even shows some sort of feelings towards Fushi maybe as an offshoot of of his genetics being linked to Hayase um I don't know if this kind of fizzles out but maybe can keep thinking ahead of ourselves this concept of love is what brings Fushi to understand like what his mission is in protecting the world against like knockers like the ultimate form of love basically is that what you kind of thought of because you know like the, the show establishes that there are these black spots that appear in fushi's vision indicating that someone is in pain i thought i originally thought like that's a warning that there's a knocker nearby that's what i thought too but then the show clarifies that it's fushi sensing someone's pain and then you have like that sort of flutter of lights that indicate when someone has a feeling of love I don't think it's only a feeling of love. I think it's any positive feeling. Because then there's other mm. times it pops up when someone's like really happy, like they're like a kid playing with a toy or whatever, um, or just like a, a feeling of adoration for another individual. I think positivity is 
shown through those like flutters of light and then mostly pain, but maybe other negative things um, are shown through the spiky black moments. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as like the love goes, I don't know. Like I, I definitely agree that that is something that Fushi needs to experience um, because it is a, a core human emotion. And mm-hmm. if he's trying to, if his whole purpose of existing is to understand the world and therefore know how to like protect it or do whatever the black one has planned for him. Mr. Black. Yeah. <laughs> I think that having positive experiences are just as important as having the negative experiences. Because at one point, the black one explains to Bon, I believe, that um, the deaths of humans are actually necessary for Fushi's motive not motivation but to fuel fushi to continue growing right and he needs him to continue growing but he never says the same thing about love so i think bon and his friends who care about him um, are trying to show him that love is equally or like love or the positive emotions are equally as important for growth as are like the the negative emotions okay and like i said i think fushi just organically reaches that reasoning in the end with his with him becoming a tree, basically. <laughs> and, and love doesn't have to be like literally falling in love with somebody. It's mm-hmm. caring for other individuals. So really, you could argue that Fushi has been experiencing that to some degree because he's established these connections with, again, March and Pioran and Gugu and, and everyone that he met more more so in season one. I would say less in season two. I feel like the bonds are very, like, like I said, bonds are very brittle in season two. They're very service level in season two. Um, but you know, at least he cares about these people. With that said, while we're talking about romance, I just want to call out, I think it's episode eight when Bond's arc kind of comes to a, a conclusion and he gets his fucking haircut that changes him exponentially. I hate the romance. I am not convinced <laughs> at all between him and Toto. I get they were establishing the foundations for that through his flashbacks and through her being the girl that he, you know, uh, had a crush on when they were younger and I'm glad to see them together. But it, again, because this this is such fast pacing, it felt so forced. It's like suddenly mm-hmm. they're like they're into each other and that's great and all. But then on t- the cherry on top was when Chaba was like, it feels like we're a family. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? Kind you're of forcing s- them into that. Yeah. Part. I was like, how are you their, ch- their adoptive child? Like, you're some random kid who happened to be stuck in a cage with Bon for a couple of weeks. Um, yeah, it's great that like he saved you and stuff. But did you ever get the sense that they had a meaningful conversation while in that cage? Because I didn't. I felt like they were just two people stuck in a room together um, and then one of them saves the other and that's about it. Yeah, it's it's odd that th- these relationships like Bon with Chabo and with Toto, they, they don't seem fleshed out. Whereas with like going back to the Google arc, which I think is just... We'll just consider it a standard for two-year eternity in terms of storytelling. I mean, d- I, I totally agree. But, the the Gugu and Rin arc, in my opinion, is one of the most beautiful love stories in all of anime. It mm-hmm. hit so fucking hard. So it's it, the show has a lot to, to live up to. But I was going to say, like, we only... I don't remember how many episodes the Gugu arc was, but it was... I want to say it was far less compared to, like, Bones arc. And it's just confounding that we get so much emotional resonance with that that arc, which is comparatively shorter, and not have the same reaction with Bon. 
again, I, I don't know how they could have fleshed out Bond's story better, but maybe not like pigeonhole us into things like, again, with Chavo saying, oh, now it feels like we're a family or just the thing about the reveal about Toto being the the girl that Bon had seen when he was a child. I, I didn't see that coming, but also I, I I don't know if that really, if that really made sense. I didn't care. Like, I just didn't care. And here's the problem with a lot of the story beats in season two is that you could easily write out or remove some of these elements and it would not change the story at all. If you got rid of this romance between Toto and Bon and got rid of Chavo, would the story change? No. <laughs> like, it just, it wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Maybe, I guess, a little bit with the interrogation of the Church of Bennett when they were stuck in the cages. But still, like, I don't think it would drastically change anything. There are many things that you could just remove from the story, probably make the story better, probably make it more manageable pacing-wise, and nothing at the end of the day would really change. The last thing I wanted to bring up with part one, and I guess this will also play a significant role in part two, is... The, the Church of Bennett, like, were they just supposed to be a secondary antagonist in this series? I don't know if it was just representing, like, like or, organized religion um, that tries to stray the people away from the truth and by labeling others as 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 heretics, as we see in, in, in Fushi's case, where they think that he's... It, it's almost like... You know, this is going back to the Bible. It's like when the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of, of heresy, basically. Is that what they were trying to go for with the Church of Bennett? Like that evil anime church organization that appears in other other series? Yeah, so that's the sense I got. Like they were the antagonist for the sake of having an antagonist. They just came out of nowhere. And overall, it makes sense that there may be groups who are hesitant around Fushi, especially as word about Fushi spreads throughout the world. There's going to be groups that are like that doubt Fushi or, you know, question, is this actually a really, is this a, a good being for us to be around or will it ultimately destroy us? Because people are often hesitant or afraid of what they don't understand. It's, it's mm -hmm. a survival instinct. Um, so I, I get that, but they just came out of nowhere. There was no context around them. There was no like building up to this big antagonist and they were just annoying because of it. I was like, okay, whatever. Like you guys are just there to create tension, to create conflict, um, not to, you know, really push Fushi in any one direction because yeah, they trapped him in some iron. Yeah, they did a bunch of stuff. But really, Fushi didn't give a shit about the Church of Bennett. He mm -hmm. barely cared about them. Yeah, I don't know if they were meant to replace like the the Yanomi, the the, the group that Hayase was with, because I think they were also secondary antagonists in the first season uh, with the Knockers being the big baddie. But yeah, I I don't know if the, the Church of Bennett really played out well in the same way. I guess... Contrasting with like Yanomi, like wanting to put Fushi on that pedestal, whereas here, like you said, it's it's an organization that doesn't fully understand Fushi's purpose, and so that they just label him a demon just because he's going against what they believe. And moving on to the second part of To Your Eternity season two, we have the Gospel of Echo which encompasses episodes 9 through 20, Expanding Consciousness, Resonance, The Value of Flesh, Secret Behind the Veil, The Wise Man's Identity, Morning of Rebirth, The Self Worn Down, 
Three Eternal Warriors, What You Want to Protect, Death of the Deathless, and then Dawn and End of an Era. Baron Josuke and Kahaku return to Fushikushi's pirate ship Airbnb to discover that he has befriended a mute clay pot enthusiast named Echo and has become a one-man Sims game by organically creating the world around him. Fushikushi decides to take his talents to Renryu in order to renovate the town with his Sims recreations of houses and landmarks whilst simultaneously fortifying the area with anti-knickknocker defenses. Prince Josuke then cons Fushi into thinking that three warriors who have accompanied him to Renryu have the immortality quirk should he need their endless support in the impending battle. It is of course an exploitation of his Bring Me to Life by Evanescence power, which accidentally turns into Bring March to Life when his adolescent foster mother is raised from the dead. Fushi Avengers Eternity War subsequently breaks out across Renryu as soldiers and warriors alike get nick knocked up and sustain heavy losses, culminating in Kahaku's nick knocked up arm to betray Fushi Kushi, sign a new lease with Echo's arm, and leave his orb for dead. Prince Josuke decides to become an hero in an attempt to stop Fushi from being finito, a gamble that turns into a resounding but confounding success as Fushi returns with March and is suddenly able to resurrect friends lost long ago to assist him in winning the Fushi Avengers Eternity War against the Knickknockers in the clutch. Kahaku wins back his Knickknockers good graces, but decides to exile himself out of his love for Fushi and Kamikaze's The Church of Anime alongside himself as a parting gift, a decision that the Yanomi homies should have made eons ago. Meanwhile, Fushikushi decides to make like a tree and leaf all his Infina friends to live long and prosper, while he spreads his consciousness across the world in a bid to spread world peace up until the modern day and to knock the knickknockers out of existence. Perhaps instead... Fushi should have reversed the flow of time to knock this entire season out of existence. Can we start with Echo? Yes. What was her point? Plot device. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's all I, th- I could think of. Again, talking about things you could just easily remove from the story, you could just remove Echo. The only time she played any significance... And like maybe she did one or two things during the battle. Maybe she found that clog in the uh, the sewers or whatever. But like, was mm-hmm. that really important? No, you could have written that out. Um, she only really came into play when the knocker went into her arm. But then the knocker went back to Kahaku anyway. And so then it she literally just passed away. Yeah, it literally could have been any other character that the knocker overtook. Because if the Nocturne didn't stay with her in the first place, it could have just taken over any fucking one else, like Haido or whatever, and then just gone back to Kahaku. Mm-hmm. I, I was like, what is her point? What is the point of all of this? I don't understand. Like, yeah, I guess there was some meaning behind, like, you know, uh, unspoken communication through the clay pots or whatever. But I also was very uh, weary about that because every time Fushi would turn into her younger brother who had died and would read her messages through the clay pots, it was literal like flashbacks of what have what had happened. So I'm like, you're telling me she's basically showing him a movie of what exactly transpired in the past. It's a secret box. It's, yeah, <laughs> like it was just so far fetched and so unnecessary that I was like, I, I don't care about this character. Yeah, it's a shame because at first I found Echo to be an endearing character. I think she was meant to represent the sort of 
like innocence that was taken away, unfortunately, by the threat of the knockers. Since I think like Fushi learned that her her entire family, her entire tribe, was wiped out by the knockers in an attack. Um, and you know, I, I think that's why like Fushi kind of keeps her along just to continue to protect her innocence. But yeah, in the end, besides her finding that the, the they've poisoned the water supply. Um, I think she's just there just for, for plot purposes. There was one moment in the latter half or the second half where I think Fushi was like doubting himself and then he saw Echo or whatever and then he's like, um, I have to keep pushing myself and keep going. Even Echo's been hard at work. And I'm like, hard at work doing what? Cooking food with Kahaku? Like, what mm-hmm. is she doing? Like, yeah, she fought on the, like, at some of the battle moments or whatever, but did she really fight? Did we really see her go toe to toe with yeah, a bunch of knockers? Came out of nowhere. Like too. she had a helmet and a sword. Which, by the way, how is that small girl holding that sword and waving it around like it's nothing? Um, and like, I guess they are implying that she helped or whatever. But did she really help? No, she didn't. I feel like of all of the characters that we've been introduced to, and all of the characters that Fushi has made connections with, Echo does not matter like i know that sounds harsh but echo just doesn't do anything of significance unlike every other character i think the one thing where i felt like she was a plot device was i think when bon was trying to reveal uh kahaku's betrayal during the battle um i think he had uh, fushi learned through echo right because she had witnessed what happened and I don't know if it's like, oh, this is a perfect way for Kahaku to not overhear that they're telling Fushi about his betrayal. But you know what? The, you, I remember you brought this up when you were, you and I were watching the, that episode. And I said in, in response to that, well, Bon could have just walked up to him and whispered it in his ear <laughs> or just walked away from wherever or Kahaku was. Because yeah. Kahaku wasn't even there, I'm pretty sure. And even if he was, Bon could just be like, hey, Fushi, can I go talk to you for a second? Or like just any excuse to get away from Kahaku. And then Bon could have just verbally said to Fushi, by the way, Kahaku betrayed you. That mm. easy. That quick. But instead, they had to have Fushi transform into um, the dead brother and then touch the clay pot and then go through this whole sequence where he's like literally seeing what transpired when it could have taken Bon five seconds to say Kahaku betrayed you. Yeah. I don't know. It was just so it was too much for something that was so simple. And then as far as like the knockers go, did you feel like they actually put up a threat? Like I felt like the knockers were almost a character in and of themselves in season one. In season two, I just felt like they were there for the conflict. Like they were just like, I don't know. Like there's something about the knockers that was not impressive in season two. No, I I, I agree. Like the knockers, I felt like in this season, they, or maybe in this part, they just felt too much like like a tropey antagonist. Like this is a this is an enemy force, and we have to take them down. I think in part one, we had some interesting insight into the knockers through Kahaku's arm, because that knocker is explaining kind of how like knockers do have a a, a virtuous motive in what they're trying to do by protecting souls from having to deal with emotions or having to deal with pain and loss. And that's why they're trying to infect the world. Although I I think you can like, you can see that the antithesis to that is that you, you lose 
experiences. You lose memories. You lose what makes you human by cutting yourself off from your own soul. But I think all of that's kind of just scrapped away for the the, the knockers to just turn into an army uh, in this arc. And yeah, there are instances of where they overtake people, but it I don't know, it, it just feels like a like the, the the typical anime battle in that sense. Yeah, they they felt less scary than season one. Mm-hmm. They felt less threatening than season one. They just seemed more annoying. Like they just they they wouldn't stop coming, and the battle went for like four days. Like it's just more of an annoyance than anything. Um, and that's even with the black one revealing all this information about them and Kahaku's knocker, like actually being able to communicate and like explain why they're doing what they're doing. Like despite all of that, they didn't seem scary. They didn't seem like this crazy threat. And then there's one episode towards the end of the show where who's this, what's his name? Kamu, the one guy Mm -hmm. and like his comrades are like defending the, I think maybe it was like a church or wherever they were housing all the injured people. Yeah. And, literally it was a swarm of knockers i mean like towering over them like a mass like a sea of like knockers and not one of them got hit not Mm -hmm. one of them not one of the knockers could get a hit in on any of them none of them got pierced i think maybe kamu like succumbed to them at some point succumbed succumbed (laughs) (laughs) succumbed is a word i don't know (laughs) i'm not thinking straight I'm, i'm too flustered by all of this but none of them could pierce none of the knockers could pierce any of the five humans that were fighting all of them so you're telling me like four or five humans who have battle experience are able to fend off a literal swarm of knockers with just their swords and none of them get hit we see so many other scenes especially in season one where even just a single or maybe two knockers can take out an entire village and they just like destroy everybody and they just take over everybody and it's horrifying but here it's like what the fuck is going on? Like th- this town should have been easily overrun. Mm-hmm. But you know, to to the positive side of the show, you had Fushi infusing himself in the town and therefore defending the town. And I will say, I did love how much they showed Fushi struggling because mm-hmm. that made it seem realistic. Because they're they're setting him up to be overpowered as fuck. He can pretty much do anything, including resurrect the dead. What, there's nothing that Fushi can't do at this point, but he's still in early days. He still needs to hone his skills. So seeing him constantly struggle and push himself every single day of this battle, and even then just barely be be able to keep the knockers at bay, I thought was a really, really good way of portraying Fushi's passion for protecting the people. Yeah, I agree. The, the, the whole... Like rebuilding the town thing and Fushi expanding his consciousness. Uh, it's almost like him, in a way, becoming the god of this world <laughs> uh, without him, you know, being the, the sort of wrathful god, more of like a benevolent god. Um, and it, it fits in with his, his mission to, to understand humanity and to empathize with humanity because it's kind of like he is feeling connected with the world now. Um, yeah, through the structures, but through him being able to sense everybody's feelings and ensuring that, of course, they're protected from the knocker threat, but also that they can live the lives that they intend to live. But I agree. It's it's great that we see him like have to develop this ability 
and for him to struggle with it because it's become so taxing on him um, before like he can fully utilize this capability at the, the end of the show. Although I will say that the whole rebuilding thing kind of dragged a bit. Like, I don't know how many episodes they kept like saying there were like timestamps like, oh, we're two weeks out or like a couple days out. Uh, and I, I get like there was stuff interspersed in between to kind of fill the gap as there as Fushi is rebuilding the town and the, the town understands like who he is. But I think this is where like part two is where I was like, just just get on with it, get on to the battle. Whereas part one was more of the fast paced stuff going on i think the last thing we need to discuss is probably one of the biggest um one of the biggest reveals in all of to your eternity and that's fushi's ability and his understanding that he has this ability of being able to revive the dead essentially that is a game changer that completely changes mm -hmm. the way we look at the show so my question to you is does this ruin everything that we got in season one? At least personally to you, like, do you feel like this cheapens or discounts all of the struggle and all of the emotion we got from season one? I think it does. I think it was kind of stupid to introduce this ability. I, I get it because Fushi is immortal, but like, I, I feel like this kind of, is a blow to his character development having experienced all the hardship and the loss of these previous vessels because the way i saw it with him inheriting these vessels um they're sort of a reminder to him that to kind of carry on like for him to carry on their legacy and to to carry on their memories and use them as examples of why he needs to protect the world from the knockers. But for him to suddenly have this ability to just bring them back whenever he likes, I think the first example of it is with the quote-unquote immortal warriors that accompany him. Like, obviously, Prince Bond was exploiting that ability. I like I don't, It doesn't sit well with me because it's like, okay, like w what did their deaths mean beforehand? Right, like if he can just bring them back hunky dory, that I, I think that just kind of cheapens the the emotional significance of what has happened in two year eternity up until this point. I'm sure you share the same answer, but what did you think about this immortal or like this bringing back from the dead ability? Yeah, I echo everything that you you said. I think that I feel like two year eternity got the DBZ treatment where death has no real consequence mm. when you can be brought back at any time. And you also have this immortal being who can control that ability. So it's not like you even have to worry about that immortal being disappearing. They're going to keep being there. So you just need to work with them to figure out, like, when can we bring these people back? And I, I, on top of that, he can also now communicate or continue to communicate with people because he has Bond's ability. So even if someone mm -hmm. dies, it's not like, oh, my God, do we bring them back? Are they still around? Is their soul still here? Have they gone up to heaven? He could literally just switch to Bond and be like, oh, hey, can you give me like five minutes? I'll make your body again. And then, you know, you can just go ahead and jump back into that new vessel or that right. new body. It just, oh, my God, like there's there was something so important about the deaths in season one um, that, yeah, I just it undoes a lot of that. And again, I I'll go back to the Gugu and Reen arc. 
it hurt so bad when Gugu died because you that was like one of the one uh, that was one of the characters that I wanted to live so badly because you wanted him to be happy mm-hmm. so badly. You wanted him to be with Reen so badly. And yeah, I'm really happy because now there's a potential to do that, assuming Reen can come back to her body. But it also just kind of makes me feel like, oh, well, I was upset for nothing. Right. And, you know, I, I'm going to tr- I'm gonna quote unquote rationalize this with what Fushi like the the nirvana that he kind of comes to in the end, or like the the catharsis that he reaches, where like he's brought everyone back, and you know like we have our opinions on that, but I think Fushi comes to the realization at that point, where now that he's brought these people back, now it's really his mission to again establish world peace, to get rid of the knockers, and and create a place where everyone can. Can live their lives the way that they intended, and so we see him turn into a tree at the very end of the seer, uh, the very end of the season, which is trees being symbolic of life and growth, and getting to witness the passage of time and their longevity, and seeing how the world has changed, and him having an influence, a positive influence on this world. But for him to do that and to allow his resurrected friends to have a new lease on life. I think it didn't even matter in the end that he brought them back to life because there's like a, a, a and where are they now segment with the beholder where their lives don't play out any more positively than when they originally passed away. Like March didn't want to leave his side. So they, they, they killed they, her. Yeah, they just poisoned her. Holy shit. Tonari <laughs> killed her. Yeah. And then uh, who was it? Like the warriors all ended up having like, basically deaths related to battle or the one guy got drunk i think and and died of being a drunkard uh fushi too he never got to see rain i guess she just wanted to pass on as we talked about who did i say said fushi oh sorry google yeah he he just i mean he spent his life helping others but then he got like an injury from a knocker and then ended up succumbing to that injury i think prince bond probably had it the best because he ended up being the king's right-hand man and maybe reestablishing his reputation. But my point is, like, like th- their lives weren't any better with Fushi bringing them back to life. So, like, why even why even have that ability in the first place? Again, it cheapens their deaths. It just makes the concept of death seem so minuscule. I think, honestly, it's because they know they could just be brought back later anyway. Like, you'd think mm. that having a second opportunity at life would, to your point, mean that they're going to do whatever they can to live life to the fullest and help people and, like, you know, die happy deaths. Like, some of them did d- uh, die happy deaths. However, why do that if you can just be brought back later over and over again by Fushi? That's probably yeah. why some of them died in just, like, dumb ways. Not dumb ways, but anticlimactic ways or not peaceful ways because they're like well fuck it i guess i could just come back later now with the post credit scene from the last episode that shows us that fushi i think eventually gets rid of all the knockers and therefore comes back to like consciousness in modern day and then finally takes that goddamn rope off his hand which by the way i am not convinced <laughs> that this entire time for years and years especially during the Renrill arc with the battles and stuff he was able to maintain that rope and not once have it get severed even on accident yeah there's no fucking way bone was able to cut those ropes off of the like the three immortal 
soldiers or whatever with just a fucking knife. He just went and just cut the ropes. Mm -hmm. So you're telling me Fushi went this whole time without ever getting it cut? That was super unrealistic. But anyway, even if he did that, he finally takes it off in the post credit scene. And I'm wondering what what story is left to tell? Where does it go from here? You've clearly achieved peace, at least from the standpoint of the knockers. Um, I guess you could bring back some of these people, but they're going to have fucking culture shock because they are like, what is this modern day world with these tall buildings? Do mm-hmm. they even want to come back in a world like this? Like what what is what's the conflict? What yeah, are we working the, towards? What's the end goal here? Yeah, <laughs> like it's conceptually it's cool thinking that he's gone literally this far ahead in time because he's had a lot of time skips, but none as great as this one. And now we get to see, like, if a creature or an immortal being like this were to show up in our modern-day world, what would happen? Like, that's a cool concept, but I I can't imagine they could flush all that out in one season. Yeah, I feel like, you know, even though it's presumed that Fushi was able to keep the knocker threat at bay, that maybe their numbers have dwindled or maybe they're extinct, that they'll, they'll still have some sort of play in the modern world that's going to require his attention um and you know i don't know how that's going to like fit in like if him because i think another thing was like the the idea of fushi being controlling especially with him using these vessels like just using them as as like player characters in a video game rather than them getting to live out their lives but i you know maybe see that like with him spreading his consciousness that in a way he is a little bit controlling of the entire world now and what that might be like if, if that kind of shows up as a limitation uh, I don't know yet I, I can't tell you where the story is going to go because we haven't read the manga uh, but honestly I don't know if I really want to know what happens in the rest of two year eternity just because of the stuff that's happened in season two how turned off I am by the story even though it just started off with all of this really emotional significance. It's like, I think we have season two, but I would have rather just had season one end where it was and and just be done with it there. Yeah, I don't know. I agree. It's like tough to be excited about something when everyone, I think you use this term, when everyone can just respawn at any time. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, so then what? Death is like the ultimate consequence. And once you remove death from the equation, it's like, well, then what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, then what? <laughs> Although they do have the teaser season three visual where Fushi's holding a boba, like a boba milk tea. I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought it was funny, but also like, damn, this shit's about to get ridiculous. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? Is he going to have like, you know, like an iPhone and like. All right. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. Just, what, what is his life going to be? Mm-hmm. And that brings us to our final thoughts for To Your Eternity Season 2. So how many Aurora Bon Uralises out of 10 would you give this season? Before I even share this, I have to say when we were catching up to To Your Eternity, it was sitting at a 7.98 on Mal. And I thought to myself, okay, maybe it gets better in the second half. Maybe like the first half just like didn't pan out, but the second half gets better. No, the opposite. It like got worse if not just at least stayed the same in the second half now that the season has ended the score as of this recording is an 8.06 i think people are riding the high of like the positive happy ending i mean they gave the the final score for the first season was an 8.31 
So we're talking like not even a point three, like point three difference mm-hmm. between the two when one season is significantly better than the other. Yeah. I am not convinced. And with that said, my score is a 5.5 out of 10. I I struggled with this because I, I wanted to give it maybe like a 6.5 out of 10. But then I went back through my mail um, and everything that I've scored in the six and five categories. And there are better anime out there that I've scored six. Um, and it was very much on par with a lot of things that I have scored in, in the five category. So yeah, I, I feel that it is a 5.5 out of 10 for all the reasons that we've already shared throughout this entire review. Um, And I I guess to sum it up, um, the reason I'm so disappointed with season two versus season one. Season one left me so emotionally distraught. I know I keep talking about it, but specifically with the Gugu and Reen arc, that even hearing Gugu and Reen's theme, which you've added to our Spotify playlist, Mm -hmm. makes me so emotional that I have to skip it. I don't actually think since that part of the season aired in season one, I don't think I've actually sat down and listened to that song in in its entirety because that's how sad it makes me thinking back to their story. I didn't get even a fraction, even a speck of that emotional connection with season two. I, I just, I didn't. There's nothing about season two that would make me want to skip anything other than the season itself. <laughs> it was just that disappointing and I, I am not hopeful for where the story is going to go. I'm not excited about where the story is going to go. And I kind of wish it would just end so that I could forget season two happened and only think about the amazing story that was season one. But what was your score? Actually, before I go into my my, my final thoughts, um, they, they, they did play Gugu and Reen's love theme. And I was upset. I'm like, <laughs> how dare you? This is nowhere near as beautiful yeah. as season one. You don't deserve to play it. I mean, it was nice to hear it again. But yeah, I, I don't think it... it I don't think season two deserved to play the theme um, at any point in the story. But for me, I would give To Your Eternity season two a six and a half out of ten. Finishing the second season of To Your Eternity definitely felt like a goddamn eternity. And I think the problem with it is that it's it started to feel monotonous and too similar to other anime that kind of lead heavy into a battle with an antagonistic force. And having these over-the-top characters like Prince Bond. We didn't even talk about Pokoa, but I don't think she deserves any any time for discussion oh my god i forgot about her i think she's like a repressed memory at this point she was so (laughs) fucking annoying Mm -hmm. but just all in all the arcs this season don't hold the same amount of originality and emotionality that the first season had which is quite surprising because i don't think we've brought this up yet but to your eternity comes from the same mangaka who wrote the story for a silent voice which is one of our what our dearly beloved anime films Um, i felt very little connection to the characters in season two like prince bon or echo or the eternal warriors like i did with march or gugu or puran in season one especially because the pivotal moments that are earned by these season two characters end up feeling hollow by the end of the season with fushi's sudden ability to bring people from the dead And I think we've we've talked about this at length, but this ability most especially diminishes the sacrifices that season one characters made for Fushi's sake. You can probably argue that it was wrong for Fushi to use them as vessels because he was quote-unquote controlling them without his consent. But on the flip side, it felt like 
He was honoring their legacies and carrying on their memories by keeping them as vessels. But now they're all just alive and everything is just supposed to be well in the world. Like, what are we supposed to learn from this? Maybe there's a lesson about the interconnectedness of life and learning to be selfless and helping people be the best version of themselves. But I feel like this lesson is just lost in the way that the climax of the season plays out. I mean, I don't want Fushi to have to feel lonely in his solitude on his immortal journey, but these sacrifices were meant to build up his character and reinvigorate his mission to protect the world against the knocker threat. This just basically feels like a cheat code for his own gain. And, you know, I could say as much about the dip in the quality of the animation with the change in studio, but I think it's mostly the direction that the story has gone that really irks me for a show that in the beginning felt so profound, felt so moving, but now has become too anime for its own good. And this feels almost as bad as the way The Promised Neverland panned out. To Your Eternity may not seem as severe, but I think it falls within that same range of disappointment. So even though the announcement of a season three might seem like a potential for the story to get back on track, and that season two might have just been a, a bump in the road, I can't shake the feeling that this second season has just left a bad taste in my mouth for To Your Eternity, and it, it might take an eternity before this series can win my heart back like it did with season one. Never forget the impact that episode one, season one, had on the fucking anime community. Mm -hmm. You, no, Nothing came close to that in season two. Um, so I think that that just shows that season two did not live up to the hype the amazingness that was season one and i i don't know i don't know what to expect i'm i'm sure at the end of the day for continuity's sake we'll probably watch to your eternity season three um even if we're not excited to do so uh so if anyone's interested in hearing a review on it we we'd love to hear your thoughts um see if you agree with us or not about uh season two and and if you have any hyper excitement for season three um, but we'll we'll see. It's probably going to be, I was reading something that said like it's going to be maybe a year or two before we get season three based on where the manga's at. But who knows? I could wait longer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I Honestly, could wait an eternity. If they want to take longer just to make sure it actually turns out well on the anime side of things, that's fine with me. But there you have it. Our thoughts on To Your Eternity Season 2. Um, thank you for, for joining us. Uh, hopefully you can at least look back on Season 1 like we did in a, a fond way and remember all of the great emotion it left you with. Subscribe to Strictly Anime on your favorite podcast service. Join our Discord to chat with us. Follow us on Instagram at The Strictly Series, on Twitter at Strictly Series, and check out our website, thestrictlyseries.com. If you'd like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash thestrictlyseries. And tune into Strictly Jojo, our other podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. All links are in the description. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb.